Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Jville Press. My name is Dustin. I am the lead pastor here. If you would, grab your Bibles, open up to the book of Joel. We are into uh, the book of Joel this morning. If you need a print Bible, I'd love for everybody to have a, a copy of God's printed word out in front of them. Uh, there are blue hardback Bibles all throughout the room. If you're having trouble finding Joel, welcome to the club. We all have hard times trying to find Joel. Uh, it is on page 905 in the blue hardback Bible. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's inerrant word in front of them. Uh, with that in mind, we're gonna be looking at Joel, uh, the whole book this morning, uh, as we're in this series called Whole, where we're seeing that the whole Old Testament is all about the story of God's steadfast love. And we're looking at Joel chapter two today, just a few verses. Uh, Christian, hear the word of the Lord to us. This is Joel chapter two, starting in verse 24. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen, would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray and dive into Joel. Uh, Father, I plead before you. I plead before the throne of mercy. Uh, Father, you know that we are in a season of suffering and a season of difficulty. Uh, but Father, would we learn uh, to kiss the wave that throws us on the rock of our salvation? Father, as storms gather and clouds are overhead, Father, would we see your light and your restoration breaking through? And Lord, I pray that it would begin in our very own lives, in our own families, and in our community. And Lord, that it would be even happening even now by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So do you know how to get through a season of suffering? I mean, do you have like a strategy or a way to get through it? Uh, well, as I've been reading through Joel this whole week, uh, it struck me that Joel has quite a lot to say to us. And actually, the book of Joel is all about getting through a season of suffering. In fact, that's really sort of the whole theme of Joel, right? It's the idea of a God who restores what the swarming locust has eaten and taken away from us. Uh, I know that's kind of a, a poetic way of saying it, but uh, Joel says that we serve a God who restores to us the years that our sufferings have taken from us. And if there's any message, uh, brothers and sisters, that you and I need today, it is to hear and to be reminded that the God of the Bible is a God who restores and makes all things new. And friends, even though our outer selves are wearing away, I know like the high schoolers don't think that's happening. You're on the upside of the curve. You're still attractive and looking good. Everybody else after like the age of 35, we're on the downward slope, right? That's where when Paul says our outer selves are wasting away, we go, mm, amen, that'll preach, right? 
but we're wasting away on the outside, but the beauty of the Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts is that day by day we are being renewed so that we are becoming, by God's grace, hopefully more and more made into the image of Jesus. And that trajectory of our lives is only gonna continue through death because death is just a door that you and I will burst right through and we will behold God and we await Jesus' return when he restores and makes all things new, uh, what the New Testament calls the resurrection. So in that story, is there anything that you and I need to hear today from the prophet Joel? I mean, many of us have never even read this book. Uh, and even if we've read it, many of us maybe haven't really understood it. So I hope by the end of this morning, when we take communion, uh, if nothing else, friend, you know that you and I, we serve and we worship the God who himself restores his people. So with that, you know, if you want an outline, we're going to be looking at the three chapters of Joel, right? There's three chapters. It makes it somewhat easy for us to have an outline. We're going to look at what God sent. We're going to look at what God wants. And then we're going to look at what God restores, right? So what God sent, what he wants, and what he restores. So look with me at Joel chapter one. Let's look at what God sent, right? The whole idea of Joel is the people are going through an incredible season of suffering, right? Things were different. Uh, you know, have you ever got that sinking pit in your stomach where it feels sort of like the ground has shifted beneath your feet and you're not quite certain what the future holds? Well, that's very much the world that Joel is living in. Uh, what we find in verse four in chapter one, right there, chapter one, verse four, uh, we learn that there was a locust swarm that came upon the land of Israel. It says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And of course, this is a really poetic language, and he's not trying to do sort of entomology and tell us all the different kinds of bugs. Entomology is the thing about bugs, right? Well, yeah, let's just act like that's right, okay? He's not trying to describe necessarily you know, a bunch of different types of bugs. What he's getting at is Joel is living during a day where uh, there was a huge swarm of locusts and it came through and it tore through the land, right? Uh, anybody remember last year? Remember last year, that happy year that we all sort of went through? And, you know, it was like, you know, there's fires and there's the COVID thing and then there's the UFO thing and then we learned about murder hornets. You remember that? Was that just like a fever dream that I had by myself? And then there was like a swarming locust that went through Africa, right? Right? Who remembers that? You may remember seeing those like photos on CNN of like the thousands of locusts that was tearing through Africa? Well, what's interesting, of course, is uh, that's exactly the image that Joel has, this sort of apocalyptic, awful, sort of end times, day of the Lord, sort of moment where this huge swarm of locusts tears through his land. But then as we read about this, we step back and we think, well, when did this actually happen in history? And then if you read Joel, it's interesting because on one hand, he talks about this terrible season of suffering, right? This swarm of locusts and the first group eats a lot and then the second group comes and eats what they left over and then the next group and then the next group, right? The point of you know, chapter four is that everything has been devastated. But what gets interesting is if you read Joel, which you can do in about 10 minutes, probably five if you sped read it, uh, is it's not exactly clear. Is he talking literally about a swarm of literal locusts or is he talking about uh, the Babylonian empire who is going to come and destroy the land and exile us off into Babylon? Uh, well, it's interesting. We don't really know very much about Joel at all. We know he was a prophet. We know that God had a special call in his life and that he was to speak God's word to God's people. 
But right there in verse 1-1, this is all the information we get about Joel. We just get that he was the son of Pethuel. We don't really know anything else about Joel. And in fact, commentators are totally split about what century he is writing in. Is he predicting the Babylonian invasion, or is he stepping back and looking back at it in history? Now, we don't really know the setting, but friend, what I want to suggest to you is that the reason we don't know is because it really doesn't quite matter. Because regardless, you and I will always go through seasons of affliction and difficulty. And the timeless message of Joel is that we may experience disaster in our lives. But what do we do with that? If it was really, really important that we had a date to this, God would have provided it. And there might, very well may likely have been a literal locust swarm. But there was quite literally the Babylonian army who did devastate the people. So what's going on in Joel's life? Well, if you can sort of step back for a second, I want you to enter into a world. Uh, you, you, you know, use your imagination, your, your divinely inspired imagination. Imagine a world where worship has been cut off where the priests mourn. That's what Joel says. There's no more food left, which means the priest can't sacrifice the wine and the, and the grain offerings because there's nothing left. So worship has been gutted. In, in Joel chapter one, verse 12, Joel's looking out over the world and he says, the vines are all dried up, the apple trees are all dried up, but you know what else is really dried up? Gladness dries up from the children of man. You know, the dried fruit is really like the dried hearts of men and women, right? So whether this is talking about sort of a physical swarm of locusts or it's about the Babylonian Empire, both of them would have applied. But what do we do when we're in seasons of difficulty? Well, it's all, Joel's all about how do I get through this season of difficulty? And so why are the people going through this suffering? Uh, well, if you were here last week and we talked about the book of Hosea, you may remember last week that uh, what Hosea told us in the word of God was that the people were unfaithful to him. God likens himself to a groom who has been betrayed by his bride and how they have gone after other gods and worshiped other gods and mixed the God of the Bible with the gods of the people. Hosea even says that they were sacrificing their children to other gods. And so God sinned in the Old Testament. He sent the Babylonian empire to come. This is all in prophetic fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28 and 29. This is all the story that God said. When he founded the nation, he said, if you turn away from me and the land is full of the oppression of the poor and murder and lying, I will remove you from the land. But if you repent, I will bring you back because I am a God of mercy. Now, that's what God says in Deuteronomy 28. And when you read the Old Testament, that's exactly what happens. And so, uh, you know, when we look at this, you know, and we think about God sort of uh, punishing his people, you know, it should, it should scare us, right? Our response should be, we should sit up a little straighter and our ears should be listening because we know that holy is the Lord and we should wanna hear what Joel has to say. So what is it that we're, we gotta see? Well, uh, God is punishing the people in the book of Joel, right? We know that at least that that's uh, a story in line with the minor prophets. Uh, but does that mean that God punishes you and me for our sins? Well, it's interesting, you know, when the New Testament picks up on this, I, I can't help but think of Hebrews chapter 12. Now, Hebrews, you have, some of you may know, is my favorite book, but listen to how Hebrews wants us to frame in our mind seasons of sort of suffering, right? Now, Hebrews writes, furthermore, 
We had human fathers who discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they, that is our human fathers, disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but God does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All right, last week I suggested to you that if you are a believer and God's Holy Spirit dwells within you, and you're going through a, a season of disaster, right, and suffering, and God starts to remove the idols from our hearts and our lives. You know, an idol is simply a good thing that you and I make the ultimate thing. We can make an idol out of anything. We can make an idol out of our family, out of our career, out of our home, out of our attractiveness, out of our school record, out of our pride. And we can take anything and make it the ultimate thing. And God is going to take his people and he's going to remove the idols. And that can often come during times of suffering and disaster. And as a person indwelled by the Spirit, uh, our heart cry is, yes, please, Lord, remove those idols because I want to rend my heart. <laughs> Not just externally rend my garments, but I want to have a heart responsive to the Holy Spirit. So what does Joel have to say to us? You know, all that to say, you know, when we look at Joel, uh, you know, God says in his word that he was punishing his people, but is that always the case for us? Uh, well, I would not suggest to you that all of our suffering is somehow our fault. Uh, instead, I want you to think about it maybe the way that Jesus looks at suffering. Now, think about it this way. In Luke 13, um, something, had, something terrible had happened to a group of people. The, a terrible disaster had struck a group of people in Jesus' lifetime. And people like you and me had a very obvious question about suffering. And they asked Jesus, right? This is a great opportunity to ask Jesus a question about suffering. And they come up to Jesus, and in Luke 13, they say, Jesus, why did this terrible thing happen to this group of people? Was it because they were really bad? <laughs> did they bring God's wrath down on them? But listen to how Jesus responds to that question. Jesus asked them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans <laughs> because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent you too will perish. Friends, what I want you to see about getting through hardship is I think what, the, what Jesus is teaching us and what Joel is saying to us is we don't always have to see all of our seasons of suffering and disaster as somehow God punishing us. I mean, sometimes we make foolish decisions, right? And we have to live with those consequences. But there's a very real aspect to our lives where sometimes tragedy and disaster falls on us, and it's because we live in a broken world. But when you and I go through disaster, notice what Jesus says. Jesus says, no, people don't suffer just because they sin. That's not how it works, right? That's the message of Job uh, that Scott preached on a few months ago. But notice what Jesus says next. He says, no, I tell you, they didn't suffer because they were any worse than anybody else. But unless you repent you too will also perish. And I want you to see as we look at Joel that God has sent disaster to his people 
And as we go through a season of suffering, we may be asking that, are we, are we guilty of something? Is there this huge sin in our lives that God is punishing us for? Well, you know, I don't know that God is gonna answer that question. Jesus certainly seems to say that doesn't have to be the case. But what Jesus does want us to do in seasons of suffering and disaster is to step back and say, this is an opportunity for me to self-examine and to potentially repent in a deeper level. Maybe this disaster is bringing to mind the idol that I have made that I hope to God the pastor doesn't mention right now. Think about it this way. You know what one of the worst disasters in my life is? You know what it is? You know what the greatest times of suffering is in my life? I just had it this week, twice. This past week, I went off uh, with my accountability group of a bunch of pastors. And you know what I had to do at the beginning of the trip and at the end of the trip? I had to fly, and I hate flying. And I'm sweat, I sweat all the time. And then I feel guilty because I'm terrified on a flight. And I'm just praying to God that nobody asks me if I'm a pastor because I don't want to be like the trembling pastor on the airplane, right? I got to bring a word of comfort. But even though I don't like flying, there is a sense that that like brief little moment where I'm uncomfortable, it is sobering in a very refreshing way because I pray very honest prayers when I'm on an airplane. I'm like, dear God, I love you, and I'm sorry, and I'm a big, fat hypocrite. I know it, you know it, I need you to forgive me of it. Are we good? There's no pretense in this prayer, right? There's no false humility in this one, God. I, if, I, if we go down, I need you. And, you know, if you think I'm being silly, it was September 11th when I was flying, and it was the 20-year anniversary. So all that to say, when you and I are going through seasons of disaster, or we see things that seem apocalyptic, or we think about things like tragedies, when you and I go through these things, I think what Jesus would direct us towards is he's saying, I'm not blanketly saying that it's because you're a bunch of you know, awful sinners and you're being zapped with a lightning bolt, but what Jesus will say is this is an opportunity to repent, to turn, to examine our hearts and mind. Are there idols? Are there good things that I have made ultimate things? And do I need to put Jesus back on the throne of my heart and mind? You know, this is an opportunity to till the fallow ground of my heart, right? And then this is very similar to what Joel says. What does Joel want us to do? What does he tell his people to do? Well, in Joel chapter 1, verse 14, he wants them to sort of prime the pump for repentance. He says, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land and cry out to God, right? He, he challenges the people to even consider this time of disaster an opportunity for them to fast and to weep and to turn towards the Lord because, uh, you know, what has God sent? Well, he has sent this people disaster, but what does God want? Well, what does God want? Well, that's answered in chapter two. If you're in Joel, go over to chapter two, verse 12. This is what Scott already read to us during our confession of sin. In Joel chapter two, uh, we start to see, well, what is it that God wants? He wants us to do this. This is chapter two, verse 12. Yet even now, <laughs> declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, 
with fasting and weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Uh, rending means to tear, right? And so in the, in the old world, you know, in the Old Testament times, you know, if people were really grieving or suffering, you know, they would symbolically do things to represent how sad they were and they would tear their garments. And what God is saying is, I don't, I don't want you just to like live this sort of external life, saying the right things or doing the external things. I want you to have a heart that is rent open. Rend your hearts, repent, and then even better, Joel reminds us who God is. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Well, what does God want? Well, he wants us to rend our hearts and to repent. And maybe, just maybe, there's somebody in this room who has triple-stitched their heart and said, I'm not confessing that as sin. I am justified in all of my actions. And God, if you think I'm doing wrong, I'm doing what I gotta do to survive. But what does Joel say? If you're going through a season of disaster and suffering, rend that heart open so that God may pour his Holy Spirit into us. I don't know who that person is, but I'm willing to bet they know if it's them. God wants our repentance. And what is it that we need to repent from, right? Well, it's our, our sin, and what is God gonna do with sin? Well, if you read Joel this week in our uh, daily devotional, the Ephraim Co-op, you'll see that God takes sin very seriously. And Joel introduces you and me into a, a, a term uh, that is the New Testament is gonna pick up on, and it's called the day of the Lord. In Hebrew, it is the Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord. And it's not just a, a single day. It's a, actually a, the best explanation I can give of the day of the Lord comes from the commentator, Doug Stewart. And he says, what is the day of the Lord? Well, he says, anytime the great king, it's God, intervenes decisively in human history to war against his enemies, it can be termed the day of the Lord. Joel's words point to both a near but also a more distant fulfillment day. And this is consistent with the rest of scripture where several days of the Lord can be identified. For instance, the Bible says that when the Northern kingdom of Israel fell, that was a day of the Lord. And when the Southern kingdom fell, that was the day of the Lord. But it also says that when Jesus Christ entered the world and preached repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, that was a day of the Lord. And Paul will say when Jesus returns to make all things right and to judge the living and the dead at the resurrection of all people, when he will scatter the people to his left and to his right, that the New Testament calls that the day of the Lord. So, of course, all of these days of the Lord have a sort of near experience that point us to the ultimate. Just like when I'm terrified on an airplane, and to me, it feels like the day of the Lord. It's meant to remind me that ultimately, whether I get off this plane alive or dead, one day I will have to stand before God who judges justly. And I'll have to plead the blood of Jesus. So there are these days of the Lord that ultimately culminate when Jesus restores and makes all things new. And see, friends, this is what you and I have to be saved from. 
Uh, we don't just have to be saved from ourselves. We have to be saved from the wrath of a holy and just God who will by no means clear the guilty. But friends, the incredible message of the gospel, the incredible news that really does make you alive by the Spirit is that Jesus Christ on the cross bore the wrath of God for us. The storm came and it destroyed his life so that we might live. Uh, friends, this is the message of Jesus. He took the punishment you and I deserved. And even better yet, he came back by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus is alive. And as one a famous commentator said it, flesh and blood sits on the throne of heaven. And that's how you and I know in our head and in our hearts that God really is going to make all things new because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. How do I know God is really gonna turn the valley of Achor into a door of hope? Because Jesus is alive. How do I know I'm gonna live after death? Because Jesus is alive. And how do you know, Christian, that one day he really will wipe every tear from our eyes and everything broken in this physical world will be made new and you will have a resurrection body? How do you know that? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life and he lives forever and we live by faith in him. And as Paul says, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now raises you to life. And Paul says, you know this is true because he's already given you and me a down payment. <laughs> anyway, I just, we just bought a, a new used car. Have you seen it? It's utterly ridiculous. It is a 32 passenger bus. I'm just kidding. It's a 12 passenger van. It's utterly ridiculous. We keep having kids. I don't know what's going on. But when you buy a car, you typically have to put what? A down payment down, right? You put a chunk of money. I don't, I don't, high schoolers, maybe you haven't had to do this yet. Maybe you will. You know, if you're lucky, you'll have to buy a car one day. You put a big chunk of money down, and that's how you know the car's yours. Friends, the New Testament says you know you are going to be made alive, and you know you will live forever because God has set his seal and given you the Holy Spirit as a down payment. Uh, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 1.22, or maybe it's 2 Corinthians 1.22. The Holy Spirit is that down payment. My spirit and God's spirit are like this, right? That's what it means to be indwelled with the spirit, right? It means I want to do what God wants to do, and he empowers me to do it. And even though you and I will always sin, in the power of the spirit, we never have to again, because we have a powerful God at work within our spirits, Right? That's what it means to be indwelled by the Spirit. So all that to say, when Joel is telling us that disaster is being sent our way and that God wants these to be opportunities for deep repentance, it's no wonder, it is no wonder that Joel immediately goes and he says, the way that God is going to make all things new, uh, to use Joel's words, the way that God is going to restore to you the years that the swarming locust, that COVID, that the death of your spouse, the disability of your family members, the years that your divorce has taken from you, all the years of your suffering, 
that you uniquely have to had to bear in your life all the years that the broken world that you and I live in, all those years that those have taken from us, I'll restore to you. I'll restore them to you. And he will do it when Jesus returns to make all things new. In the way that he does that, Joel says in the last days, which are the days you and I are living in right now, I will pour out my Holy Spirit on all people. And he says, on the young men who are impatient, on the old men who are grumpy, even on the low socioeconomic classes, even on the servants, even on the men and even on the women, they will all one day be dwell, indwelled by my Holy Spirit. See, it's right there in verse 28. Joel chapter two, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. You see, friends, what God is doing and what the New Testament picks up on is this was fulfilled at Pentecost. In Acts chapter two, uh, when the church is born and the apostles are preaching that Jesus Christ is back from the dead and that you can be saved by faith in him, Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon to his fellow Jews. And you know what his passage is? Joel chapter two. He says, you know when God said he was gonna pour out his Holy Spirit and anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved? This is fulfilled in your sight right now. Friends, Joel two is all about Jesus is all about the Holy Spirit that he is sending into our hearts. So what is God going to restore? Well, friends, he is going to restore you by faith. He is going to restore his people who trust in him. And as Revelation says, he's going to restore this whole world. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. So what do we do with all this. I mean, I didn't even get into Joel chapter three. And if you know anything about Joel chapter three, I've probably already disappointed you. So what do we do with the message of Joel? What do we do in our seasons of suffering, in our disaster? What do we do with this whole idea that there's going to be a day of the Lord? Um, well, let me just sort of finish with this. Um, and maybe this will mean something to you. You know, all the things that keep you and me up at night, that worry us, that stress us out. You know, they don't keep God up at night. They don't worry him. You know, in Joel's days, you know, it was terrifying to think about what the nations were gonna do. But Psalm 2 says the Lord laughs at the nations and holds them in derision. The things that stress you out, that worry you, don't stress God out. Uh, we are living in his story, right? Ever heard that old preacher pun on the word history? It's really his story. Um, all the things that are broken in this world and all the things that have broken you, one day God will restore to you all the years of your life that have been taken from you. He really will wipe away every tear and he will make all things new. And friends, it starts with us. 
Let's finish and pray. Father, we thank you for the message of Joel. Lord, I pray that for everyone in this room who is stressed out and worried and anxious, Lord, that you would give them a vision of your story. Father, that you are on the throne. Lord, that nothing happens outside of your providential plan. Father, I pray that as we reflect on our own seasons of sufferings, Lord, that those would be opportunities for us to repent. Lord, to remove the idols from our hearts and to wholeheartedly declare, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee. And Holy Spirit, I pray even now that you would be comforting us and Lord, that you would be working in us a desire to see your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray.